Hello, it's Friday 25th of March. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowman and I are delighted to welcome Dan Lin, co-founder of Singapore-based Zuzu Hospitality, to discuss the way forward for travel and tourism. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in to the final part of our eight-part Two Years of Travel Disruption series. It's now two years since Southeast Asian nations began shutting their borders as COVID-19 spread across the region and then beyond. Right now, the region's travel landscape has started to reshape. So on today's show, we'll be chatting all things travel and hospitality across Southeast Asia with Dan Lin, co-founder of Singapore-based Zuzu Hospitality. Dan's career includes management roles with Expedia, the Air Asia Expedia joint venture, and Elong. And he previously joined us on the show in late November 2021. So Dan, thanks very much for coming back onto the show. How are you doing and how are things down there in Singapore today? Hey, thanks, Gary. Thanks, Hannah. Thanks for having me back. Um, look, uh, you know, things are, I don't know, mildly euphoric here in Singapore, if I'm, if I'm allowed to be. You know, the, the government's told us that this is not Freedom Day and we shouldn't get too excited. But, you know, gosh, after two years, um, it does feel good the changes that were announced yesterday down here. So let's crack into those. Let's begin with those, Dan. When we were putting the questions together earlier in the week, our first one was going to be, so how close is Singapore to a full reopening? Well, that was kind of answered yesterday. So tell us a little bit more about what's actually happening from the 1st of April and what will this vaccinated travel framework actually mean in effect? Yeah, so the two big changes around the border uh, were announced yesterday, both will be effective um, on the 1st of April. So the one is that um, you know, Singapore's moved away from its old vaccinated travel lane approach to this vaccinated traveler approach. So if, if we go back to sort of you know, September, October, when, when the region started opening up, Singapore was sort of leading the way in terms of this vaccinated travel lane, uh, but it was quite pernickety. It was you know, specific countries, you had to be there for a period of time, and you had to fly on very particular flights. And over the last you know, months, as more and more Southeast Asia's opened up, I think Singapore's sort of fallen behind. So now you've seen Singapore maybe leapfrog back over some countries uh, in the region and kind of go to a much more of a, hey, if you're vaccinated, you can come in from anywhere on any flight uh, without quarantine um, and importantly, you know, without arrival testing. Uh, so they've dropped uh, one of those requirements. Um, you know, I talk a, a bit about, you know, there's always so many dominoes that have to fall. Well, you know, Singapore in this step has jumped over quite a few here and has gone to a pretty simple approach, kind of puts it up there uh, with, with some of the other best countries in this region. So that was the one uh, big thing that they announced in the morning. And then later in the afternoon, um, they confirmed that the land border uh, between here and Malaysia, which for those that don't know, was one of the busiest border crossings in the world, 400,000 plus people a day used to cross it. Um, and has been super constrained. It was a limited program of maybe sort of 6,000 a day, uh, people crossing on buses recently. That border is going to fully reopen um, at the same time with, again, no quarantine and no testing in either direction. So, you know, two really big changes there on the border, both announced yesterday. At the same time, you know, a bunch of liberalization of the rules um, for day-to-day -day living here in Singapore, bigger group sizes in mask-off settings going up to 10, Bars and restaurants can stay open much later, can have live music. 
and generally just a kind of a, a sense of you know, a lot more normality and a lot more kind of, okay, we truly are in and living with it rather than kind of being, you know, hiding away from it stage of, of, of managing this. Absolutely. Well, that was a great summary of everything that, that went on yesterday. And like you said, it, it's super exciting to follow that finally, you know, Singapore took this decision because like, I love that word you use, pernickety. They have been very pernickety. <laughs> I need to use that word more. Um, but that, that perfectly described um, Singapore, pernickety and calibrated. So open Singapore, I mean, what kind of benefits can we expect to see that that's going to bring, not just for domestic economy, but for Southeast Asia, for Asia Pacific? Yeah, so you know, from a domestic perspective, um, obviously opening up and at the same time also liberalizing what day-to-day life feels like here should make Singapore an attractive destination now, hopefully, for tourists to come in. But for the region, I mean, Singapore used to drive about eight, eight and a half million outbound departures a year, if you look back to 2019, and that fell to you know, 500,000 last year. So, you know, there's some potential for up to, you know, 8 million more folks to start traveling out. And those are generally regional trips. You know, the top destinations for Singaporeans were KL, Bangkok, Hong Kong, Bali, Taiwan, Tokyo, Penang, Seoul, Manila, Phuket. Now, of those, obviously, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Tokyo are still very difficult. Tokyo, you can get to on business. Hong Kong, Taiwan, um, really, you can't get to at the moment. But you can expect to see Southeast Asian destinations, you know, particularly those who have been very liberal in terms of their opening strategy and have relaxed rules around testing. You can see them you know, picking up a lot of business um, out of this. I've already been seeing over the last weeks, you know, a ton of Singaporeans heading over to Cambodia because Cambodia is obviously taking a very open approach. I think other markets that take an open approach, relaxed testing rules, et cetera, we'll see an awful lot of Singaporeans trying to get off the island now that it's going to be very, very easy to jump on any plane to get back in and you know, not have to worry about testing. So that's the good news. But it has been two years of, of complete disruption, Dan, and that's why we've been putting together this eight-part series. We're, we're bringing it to, to a close uh, with some of your insights. And one of those I wanted to really dive a little bit deeper is what have been the big, the big fundamental uh, lessons for travel and tourism that we've learned over the past two years, both from the pandemic itself and the responses to it. Yeah, so th- there've been a few. I, you know, I've I've only worked in travel for ten or twenty years. I'm sure there are folks who've worked longer, but I don't remember uh, ever something that's had such a long impact. You know, we've, we're used to in travel there being things that have you know closed down destinations for a few weeks, you know, natural disasters, potentially a few months with kind of political disturbances. There's never been something that's closed travel down for such a, pretty much all the world in, in some cases, for such a long amount of time. And so I think this has obviously you know, changed our mental models about how to prepare for disruptions. And we need to be kind of much more willing to think about long-term impacts on, 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 the, on the industry. Um, I, I think the other piece um, that's really you know, come to the fore over the last couple of years is the temptation the perhaps natural temptation of politicians to kind of pander to nationalism and protectionism has really kind of come to the surface. You know, keeping borders open, particularly to vaccinated travelers who who drive very minimal risk of putting strain on hospital systems, I think really should have been the default approach much earlier on uh, than what we've seen now. I mean, you know, the WHO has kind of said, you know, closing borders, quarantine requirements, really don't make much sense. You know, there's an awful lot of talk now about how 
you know, here in Singapore, they'll say, oh, you know, imported cases are less than 1%, 2% of total cases that therefore we can open up. Well, that's been true for an awfully long time. That's, that was true six to nine months ago. But there's, you know, a, a natural tendency, I think, of politicians to kind of be like, oh, we're going to close the country down. We're going to keep you safe. Obviously, you know, that's how, you know, the recent Japanese uh, election kind of, you know, um, shaped out and why, you know, partly the reason why Japan is still very much closed. And so I think that's been disappointing. And I think the second thing that's been disappointing is how weak the travel industry's lobbying has been to kind of counter that. Uh, and I don't mean countering it in a sort of, hey, everything should be open from day one type approach. You know, you know, I think it was right that we took a safety first approach, but a sort of science-based reopening much earlier on could have been achieved, I think, if we'd had a more effectual lobbying approach. I think the travel industry's lobbying approach is too disjointed between airline-specific, hotel-specific, travel agent-specific, OTA-specific lobbying groups that all tend to take a line that's about pushing a particular angle for their narrow interest. And, and I don't think we've had a particularly effectual um, kind of cohesive argument for you know, the benefits of travel, the importance of travel to local economies, the importance of, of travel to you know, I don't know, world harmony. And, and I think you know, the travel industry needs to look hard at how does it avoid being the whipping boy um, when something like this happens again in two years, five years, 20 years, whenever it is. And then I think also the travel industry needs to needs to be prepared for something like this to happen again. And you know that probably means that travel companies need to think an awful lot about being better capitalized, having more of a rainy day fund set aside. You know, you look at kind of airlines, you know, airlines kind of, the, it, it seems that in good times, airlines pay out all their money to their shareholders and dividends, and then in bad times go to governments for bailouts. Maybe airlines need to be better capitalized. Maybe airlines need to be thinking about, hey, how do I manage over a 10-year cycle where there's going to be a tough couple of years every 10 years, whether it's because of a virus or, or because of you know, a global financial crisis or whatever it is. And so I think the industry needs to be a bit more responsible about capitalizing itself a little bit better, as well as thinking about how it does a much better job on sort of lobbying going forwards. And those are some great insights. I, I, I really agree with you about the the lack of kind of cohesive lobbying, for sure. I mean, I think that's the one thing that Phuket actually got right was that somehow they managed to bring all of these diverse stakeholders together and they really lobbied for the reopening um, of Phuket. But that is pretty much the exception. Bali have done that to a certain extent, but still not much. Bali should have should have been at the same point as Phuket or or a month after Phuket got its sandbox in place and saw some traction looking it hasn't it hasn't transformed Phuket but it's probably saved an awful lot of um, small businesses there Bali should have done the same they should have been pushing much harder much earlier on with a much more cohesive um, voice to get their market reopened on a, a sort of sandbox type approach yeah Agreed. So then personally, what are some of the vital business learnings you've taken on board during the pandemic? It's sort of a little vague, but just the the value of flexibility um, has just been magnified. Um, we all went into this kind of having no idea sort of how long this would last, uh, having having no idea you know what the magnitude was going to be. And you could, you know, however great your plans were and you're sort of, you know, you're okay, we'll do this, we'll do that, we'll do the other, just having the flexibility to constantly pivot on that. And, and, and that's, you know, 
that's meant you know flexibility in terms of you know having a very flexible team who are willing to go and work on different things, willing to change priorities on on, on a pin. Flexibility in terms of you know the business model, you know trying to not have too many fixed costs in the business, trying to be very flexible. You know, we've been fortunate for our business that from an operating perspective, we we operate in markets with flexible labor models. And look, you know, you know that that means sacrifices have been taken by everybody in our company. You know, we've been able to cut salaries, and we did that for you know a reasonably long time. There are countries in the world where you can't do that, and if you can't cut salaries, then you end up having to cut heads. And that's I think that's a much more draconian solution to have to take. And so just really thinking about how you layer in flexibility into um, all your business operations, all your business approaches, all your organizational approaches um, is it, certainly going to be something that I'm very conscious of. And I think it will shape thinking of you know, business and operations kind of going forwards. It's like, oh, you know, there, there are these black swan events. And how do you how do you prepare for those? And kind of on a similar theme, Dan, last time we spoke in November, you mentioned that in recent history, whenever there's been a travel crisis or a disruption, this has kind of pushed travel ever more online and sort of reset to another digital level. Uh, at that time, you referenced uh, 9-11, for example, and Fukushima in, in Japan. Over the past two years, obviously, we've experienced an enormous dislocation. So how will this influence a sort of digital transformation to the next level? In future, yeah, I, I think broadly that still holds. I would, I, I, I put a couple of nuances on it, but broadly, I think it holds. And, and and if you think just sort of simplistically in this part of the world, the most, the most sort of legacy or offline part of our industry, I think, was still sort of outbound China. Um, you know, outbound China because you had so many people traveling out of China for the first time. It was kind of like outbound Japan in the 1980s, which is, it was still very travel agent driven and group travel driven. And and that's a very offline part of the industry. Well, that part of the industry is going to be the last piece that returns. So just simply by dint of that bit of the industry not existing right now, we've shifted online. I think you'll also see, um, unfortunately, you know, the, the online platforms have obviously all survived because you know they're just servers, if you will. And but but a bunch of the um, travel agencies won't have made it through the last two years, and so you know that will drive a shift between um, offline and online. I, I think the one nuance I I would say is you know I am seeing an emergence, particularly at the at the top end of the market, at the luxury end of the market, an emergence of more longer trips, more trips that are combining business and leisure. Um, and um, you know that gives an opportunity, I think, for offline for travel agents to kind of really create interesting things and help travelers, particularly over this next three to six months of bumpiness, while there are still all these rules and regulations, to help travelers navigate those a bit, to help with all the paperwork, to help make sure they've got the folder of everything they need to get through a particular border. I am conscious that there is still a you know the, an opportunity there, but I think it's a it's, it's a slightly different opportunity from the sort of the mass group travel, offline travel agency business that we that we perhaps um, saw more recently. Interesting. So let's look at hotel industry. What are the key challenges that you think hotels are going to face in this new era of travel as it unfolds? And would that have happened anyway, or has COVID kind of created new dislocations with that? Yeah. So. I keep changing my mind on on sort of this whole, you know, is this a new normal that we're, we're, we're moving into? I was in Florida over December and, you know, Florida felt about as 2019 as anywhere could feel. 
Um, you know, for, you know, it, it just felt completely like the old normal. It felt like nothing had changed. You know, they'd they'd gone through COVID, they'd had their vaccinations if they wanted them, and then they would just got on with life and they didn't talk about COVID anymore. And you know, it was like 2019, and, and that kind of got me very much into the okay, you know, the new normal is going to be very much similar to the old normal, and it's just going to be some sort of period of adjustment. And and so I'm absolutely convinced that you know there's going to be a period of adjustment. We're definitely seeing now travel is a heck of a lot more last minute. Our Friday bookings for the weekends are off the scale um, because you know we're just seeing everybody wait till the very last minute, make a decision about what they're going to do, and then they book on Friday. Now that's partly because you know there's awful there's an awful lot of supply out there in the hotel industry, um, so you can travel very last minute and, and get good deals. But that means that you know it's it's very hard to do sort of effective you know book building in terms of your revenue revenue management if it's all coming down to the very last minute. You need to be very responsive um, on kind of you know looking at what are your prices on Friday morning via via the competition because if you don't have a logical price out there, you're not going to get demand or you're going to get too much demand at a cheap price. So you need to be much more proactive in terms of revenue management. Now I don't know how long that lasts. I don't know whether that's say hey this is a three to six month whilst the market's bouncing back. And in two years, the market will feel very much like old normal again. Um, but I do think there's, there's a period of adjustment here where you need to be spending five times, 10 times more thinking about your revenue management, thinking about your promotional strategies, because the market is super volatile. Um, you know, as these announcements are made, you know, these spikes are happening. And if you've, if you've got promos out there that are, are based on, I'm only targeting domestic travelers, and then all of a sudden, the government announces that it's that it's you know, dropping a testing requirement, or Emirates announces it's it's going to treble its capacity into your destination. And there's this flood of new demand that suddenly pops into your destination. You may need to change your promotional strategy within within 30 minutes. Otherwise, you're going to have filled your hotel up um, at, at a yield that's kind of not your optimal yield. And so the, the need to be on top of revenue management, on top of your distribution strategies, on top of your promotional strategies, particularly for this next three to six months, I think is, is absolutely mission critical. Yeah, absolutely agree. The, the hard work starts here, really. We're, we're going to see how these new shifts and how these new travel patterns shake down. And it's going to take time, as you say. And as you've also mentioned, Dan, we do need to be realistic that in Southeast Asia, not all of these entry restrictions are going to be magically lifted all at once. So we're still going to have this sort of dislocation a little bit across the region. What do you think over the next months, as, as the industry starts to recover, the travel trade should be advocating to make it even easier? The, the testing piece, and in particular, pushing back on PCR testing. I mean, the, I, I've not seen any credible doctor ever make a case now, or recently at least, why um, PCR tests are needed. You know, ART, RAT, lateral flow, whatever you call them, the, the, you know, these much cheaper tests seem more than sufficient. So anybody that's still demanding PCR tests and, you know, Indonesia, it's, you know, one PCR test before you fly, two upon landing. Thailand, it's still one PCR test upon landing. Um, you know, so anybody that's still requiring PCR tests, those need to immediately be pushed to be moved to, to lateral flow ART type testing, much cheaper. And then eventually, I mean, most of those testing things could also go away. I mean, Singapore, obviously, um, has dropped the arrival test, but they, they said yesterday they'll review the pre-departure test in two to four weeks uh, and potentially remove that. Um, Australia just announced this morning that they're scrapping the pre-departure test. That's the federally mandated test. You still have to do a, a lateral flow ART test 
but it's a self-test when you land. That, that's, that's a state rule. So more and more countries are dropping these. If you look globally, I think there are now about 84 countries where if you're vaccinated, you don't have to test. And so as a traveler, if you're kind of thinking about leisure travel and you've got to, you know discretion about where you go, if you want that certainty of, hey, look, I just want to know that when I land, I'm going to get to go and enjoy my holiday. My kids are not going to be separated from me because one of us tested positive and stuff. You know, people are going to increasingly make their choices about going to places where it's cheaper and easier uh, to know that they're going to get a trip. Um, and so I think you know, pushing to, to just to now sort of drop this testing, particularly as we're moving to a world where COVID is endemic. You know, I, I think we have to eventually get to a point where we just trust people to be responsible about if you feel sick, you do your own test. And if you're sick, you don't travel. Uh, and I think we'll get there. I think Europe's already there. I think you know Cambodia and Sri Lanka in this part of the world are already there. I think Singapore will be there pretty quickly. I think you know Australia, Fiji, Philippines, these places um, you know are, are doing well. I think Thailand is tying itself in knots on this, and I think Indonesia um, needs to needs to kind of make a call about whether it's going to move all of the country or just Bali um, pretty quickly to to get to there. So in terms of all of these different models, and you, you referenced that just now, there's kind of different speeds of reopening in a way. And, you know, in Southeast Asia, we've got Thailand's test and go. We've got Singapore's previously the vaccinated travel lanes. Um, Cambodia's kind of open to all approach. Um, how have you seen that impact hotel volumes? Yeah, so I, I mean, it's it's been mixed. So obviously, and it, 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 again, it sort of depends where the relative is. So, you know, Thailand was, was sort of ahead of the game for a while. And we definitely saw... You know, particularly, you know, pre-Omicron, so November, you know, Thailand was really beginning to pick up. Now, Omicron caused that to sort of pause. It, it didn't fall back, thankfully, uh, but um, obviously, you know, they, they stopped approving new arrivals for a while. Um, if you look at some of the data that is, is published on kind of airline uh, capacity, you could see that there was kind of a pause, um, sort of November, December, January, sort of things plateaued in the region um, and then it picked up again. But now you're seeing, you know, we're seeing, Phuket start to suffer a little bit. I mean, in the last three weeks, Phuket's volumes have started to fall back. That, I think, is driven by the fact that Bali is reopened. Now, Bali's reopened with a bit of hair on in terms of lots of testing requirements, but we've seen Bali volumes go up 4x in the last three weeks. And that's all cross-border. It's all driven by you know, international travelers starting to shift back to Bali. And I think that's you know, obviously then going to you know, have a little bit of a negative impact on Phuket. We're definitely seeing Cambodia do incredibly well out of its more relaxed uh, approach to reopening. Philippines also, um, you know, particularly from February, um, has really seen a, a, a pop up as as they've opened in a much more relaxed way. You know, they're they're at sort of fifteen to twenty percent of what they used to be in terms of inbound, um, having been you know down in the sort of five to ten percent range. So. You're definitely seeing you know, consumers make choices about where is opening and where is opening easier and then shifting towards those. Now, we've still got an awfully long way to go. I mean, no, nowhere in terms of inbound is at the sort of 40, 50, 60% levels of what they used to be. But I think that will all stop coming now that it's getting easier to travel out of markets as well as get into markets. Yeah, that's a really good summary of where we are right now. If, if we just go back a couple of months or maybe three months, Dan, at the beginning of the year, you posted online that there were three reasons for optimism in the region at that point. Uh, one was that Omicron is more transmissible but less severe 
version of COVID and governments seem to have accepted that right now. The second reason was that travelers are desperate to travel. I think that is, that's proving true as well. And governments are trying harder to keep travel going. I think that's a very, very vital point. So as we move into Q2 and then the really, really vital second half of 2022, are there other reasons to be optimistic about the recovery? Yeah, I mean, I'm actually slightly more optimistic now than I was on January 1st. I think I think governments have slightly surprised me on the upside. Now, maybe that's just because you know I had a bit of Stockholm syndrome, but you know I, I think they've they, they've moved a little faster, and um, particularly in March, uh, than I thought they would. And some of the openings have been more liberal than I thought they would be. Vietnam, in particular, I would I would flag as it took them a while to work out the detail of what they were doing, but when they came out with the detail, it surprised me to the upside of how open they went. Um, I think Singapore's move yesterday, particularly opening the land border, surprised me on the upside. And so I think we're we're sort of a month or two ahead of where I thought we would be. We're also kind of further and further along now in terms of vaccinations. You know, the statement I made about sort of Omicron, you know, I, I think Omicron has proven to be somewhat milder. I, you know, I, I think it's fair to say it's not necessarily a mild disease, but it is somewhat milder. But the effect of vaccinations has, has proven more powerful than we could have hoped for at the worst times. So I, I think, you know, as as we've got more and more of our populations in Southeast Asia really well vaccinated, I think that gets us into an, a much better position now, uh, Vivi, where we were even at the beginning of the year, um, so that I do feel very optimistic. I, you know, I, I, I have a very hard time imagining how we're going to go backwards from here. So I'm, I'm feeling very bullish. And I think what you're starting to see is that translate into the important thing, which is airlines building out capacity. You know, we can feel all excited and borders can be open, but if the planes aren't flying, you know, the travel industry is not going to recover. And you're seeing, you know, in the forward plans of, of airlines, you know, some really positive things. Gary Sobey produced some data. Uh, he's an, an aviation analyst in the region. And ASEAN used to have about 1,300 international destination or routes that it, that it flew to, so non-domestic routes, 1,300 pre-COVID. Right now, we're at sort of 350, 380, that kind of level. Um, but if you look at the forward plans of the airlines, by the end of April, that's going to be in the sort of 450 to 500. So it's a it's really ramping up quickly. And I think we'll see Q2 be the period where these routes get rebuilt. Obviously, the frequencies also need to get rebuilt. And you know, as, as we get into the second half of the year, I'm very bullish and you're starting to see that reflected in the forecasts that the different tourism authorities are putting out about kind of what they expect to be by the end of the year. You know, Singapore is talking about Changi Airport being at least 50% this year. Thailand's numbers are kind of moving around, but you know, STR is, is, is putting out numbers where they're saying they think Bangkok's going to be, occupancies are going to be you know, within 80% of what they used to be, ADRs within 80% of what they used to be. So that implies sort of, Rev pars of sixty to seventy percent by the end of the year. So there's some bullish um, forecasts starting to emerge, and I think as we see more steps, you'll see more and more of these tourism authorities update their forecasts as these capacities get built back in for what the end of the year will look like. And I think you know, as a region, I think it's reasonable to expect that we'll be at least halfway back by the end of the year, and and that's that's great leap forward from where we are even now. Absolutely. Now, of course, the one element that is kind of missing from a Southeast Asian tourism recovery right now is the Chinese market. How do you think that that's going to impact optimism? Um, Can we really see a a sufficient recovery until Chinese travelers come back? 
Um, I, I think you can see a sufficient recovery. Obviously, it's, it's not going to be a full recovery, but the, the reality is that the entire industry's got leaner. You know, we're all operating our businesses on, you know, on, on tighter cost structures. And so I think we can all do okay, even without China coming back. And look, you know, who knows when China will come back? It's not going to be fast. Um, I think it partly depends on how effective they are at transitioning out of COVID zero. But, you know, if you look at our region, obviously China was a big part of it. You know, markets like Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam, you know, about a third of their business, third of the inbound business came from China. You know, markets like you know, Singapore, Malaysia, you know, a little bit uh, lower, sort of 10, and Indonesia, you know, in the sort of 10, 10 to 20% kind of ranges. So, you know, you can certainly have a very healthy year, even if you're missing 10 to 20% of your business, even if you're missing 30% of the business, you're having a much better year than you were having in 2020 and 2021. So I, I think the industry will feel good. It'll certainly feel a lot better once that China outbound uh, traveler comes back. But that's why we need to, as an industry, just be working a lot harder to appeal to other travelers. And we need to be, we can't just sit and wait for China outbound to come back. We're going to have to you know, persuade Europeans to come here. And if we want Europeans to come here, then we need to make this as attractive as it is to travel within Europe, which means no testing, frankly. There's no testing to travel between you know, destinations in Europe. So we need to get to that point if we want to have a reasonably successful 2022. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable summary, Dan. And as somebody who's spent a lot, much of the last week sitting on earnings calls for some of the Chinese travel majors, I mean, I know from the other side of the, the coin, from the Chinese market, you know, the, the businesses desperately need outbound travel back. You know, the industry has been so structurally damaged in China. I don't think that really gets too much coverage in the West, uh, just how damaged the Chinese market itself has been. But let's, let's move on to the next point. And I guess, you know, this is something we have to talk about. You referenced this towards the beginning of the interview, Dan. And that's the elephant in the hotel lobby. And that, of course, would be a new variant later in the year. Do you think that what we've learned over the last two years, you mentioned the vaccinations, that governments would respond differently next time than they did at the start of Omicron? Or do you think it's just too hard to predict? I'll, I'll definitely caveat with it's hard to predict. Let's look at what governments did when Omicron came. Some of them paused plans to ease. None of them, in this part of the world at least, really stopped an existing booking coming. So Singapore and Thailand both stopped new bookings being made. But nobody said, hey, we're going to disrupt a pre-existing booking. And I think that was important because I think it was the first time I, I really felt like they recognized the harm that that would do to the travel industry in terms of you know, disrupting people's travel plans. So the, even though there was a little bit of an overreaction, I think it was, it was even then it was slightly tempered. And I think now, um, having gone through that you know omicron and i'm not uh, i'm not a medical doctor but you know from what i've read omicron was you know a really scary looking mutation you know lots of things mutated and yet we've kind of we've we've gone through it and we've proven that actually our vaccines work fine we're now at a point where you know even if you compare to say mid december our vaccination rates are materially higher you know across the region obviously singapore and malaysia were pretty well vaccinated by mid december but you know, Indonesia was only at 40%. It's now up to like 60%. Thailand was in the 60s. It's now up into the 70s. And boosters um, have, have been rolled out. I think Singapore's up to 70% boosted. Malaysia's at 50%. Vietnam's at almost 50%. So we're just better and better position now. And having gone through Omicron and it not been a terrifying thing, and I say that with you know, awareness, you know, people have died, but 
you know, having managed the Omicron wave. My personal view is that it is, a, it is unlikely that we'll see a new variant cause a massive disruption going forward, because I think that there is an increasingly broad set of tools about how we manage uh, this, and we're relying less and less on this blunt instrument of the border to close it. And so I say that, you know, you know obviously partly with a little bit of an optimistic tint um, and a hope, but I, I genuinely think we've moved a little bit beyond that. And I, I, I really struggle to see governments moving backwards on, on this um, at this point. I hope you're right. And last question for you, Dan. What are your own travel plans? So uh, last time Gary spoke with you, you'd said that you and your team were ready to take off once again in 2022. Has that started to happen? It has, yeah. So um, my business partner, Vikram, is kind of on the road uh, like a road warrior again in Thailand, in India. Both of us um, are off to um, Bali in the next couple of weeks in Jakarta. Uh, I've got a, a, a little holiday plan to Israel in May. So I, I, I think you know, we feel like, okay, it's back. You know, Let's get on with it. Wonderful. I think is- Israel with a bit of sunshine, nice food. I'm jealous for that one. <laughs> So that brings us to the end of our eight-part two years of travel disruption series. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and this series. And don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed with Dan or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, www.theseasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can listen to every single episode, including this one with Dan, on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each app. And please remember that if you do tune in via Spotify or Apple Podcasts, as around 60% of our, our listeners actually do, please give us a quick rating and a review, as that will help other people to find the show. So that's a wrap for today, and we'll both return next week to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia. We look forward to seeing you then. Thank you.